Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 15. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey? Whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin. But ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. And we do give you the glory that you have caused us to obey from our hearts that form of doctrine which was delivered us, or to which we were delivered. That you would grant us a rejoicing that we are no longer the slaves of sin. That that was in a bygone and a former time, and now we are the slaves of obedience unto righteousness. Have mercy upon us. Teach us your will. Build us up in faith and holiness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We'll review very briefly what we looked at last week and then jump into verse 17. Last week we saw how there are but two spiritual masters, sin and obedience. We saw that sin is a transgression of the divine law, disobedience against the heavenly commands, and therefore when men seek holiness or righteousness in man's inventions, it will be either sin or obedience. And we saw then not being obedience to a divine law It is disobedience to God. We saw a consolation that though we may slip and fall at times to serve the old master's sin, yet this is merely occasional. It is not the pattern of our lives. We also saw an exhortation to more and more train our minds, our wills, our affections, and all the members of our body to ignore the demands of sin and to listen to the master obedience. We saw in the second place that there is a twofold righteousness In those united to Christ, one is the righteousness of justification, perfect in this life, complete and full in all the saints, it's equal because it's Christ's righteousness. Then there is an imparted righteousness. God imparts righteousness to us by his Holy Spirit, enabling us unto all holy obedience so that we can put off the old man and put on the new. This we call sanctification. We saw a rebuke concerning those who say that there is no justification by faith alone. They raise the objection, if you believe you're justified only by faith and not by works, won't that open the door that you'll justify sin and say it's okay to sin because we're not under law, we're under grace. We saw that our doctrine has the same objection since the days of the Reformation, men have objected and said, well, that leads to licentiousness. Oh, well, you're in bad company. You would object to Paul's doctrine as well because ours is the same. Then we saw an exhortation from Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. We saw how the Lord has not caused good works to fill the place of a moving to justification. No, you cannot be justified by your works. But God has appointed good works as the way by which we walk to his kingdom. It is the way God has appointed us to salvation. That good works are not what we're saved by, but they are what we are saved unto. Now then, we'll consider verse 17, delivered to doctrine. We'll look at this in two parts. First, God be thanked. 
And second, delivered to doctrine. First then, God be thanked. Romans six seventeen. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. First then, God be thanked. Please open to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, page 1169 of your pew Bibles for another instance of God being thanked. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we'll read verses 16 and 17. Same phrase here in verse 16, but thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. For indeed, he accepted the exhortation, but being more forward of his own accord, he went unto you. Notice there a couple of things that men consider in their philosophies to be contradictory, which are not. First, God is thanked. God is the one who receives the thanks for this because he put something in the heart of Titus. Did you know God can put things in people's hearts that weren't there before? He can make them to exist. He can remove bad things and put in goods if he wants. He can do that sort of thing. And we're to thank him when he does it. Notice that. He put an earnest care in the heart of Titus, his thoughts, his will, his affections. God put that in there that he would say, I care so much about the Corinthians. I want to do something about it. I'm going to pray for them and I'm going to take action. That's earnest care. But notice verse 17. For indeed he did what? What did Titus do? He accepted the exhortation. Paul had exhorted him concerning the needs of the Corinthians, concerning their status and the need for care. And did he say, well, God will provide someone. You see, he accepted of his own will. Even it says of his own accord, he was more forward and actually went to Corinth. Was it Titus choosing to do this good thing or was it God? Yes, actually, this is what's known as Calvinism. God is the sovereign source of grace and changes men's hearts, but men are to make decisions. We're not blocks and stones. We have wills. We have minds. We can hear an exhortation appealing to our will. And then if we do the right thing, we don't say, good job, Titus. No, we say, all praise to God. Give thanks to God because he put it in his heart. Do we have duty? Yes. If we do it, is it because we're good peoples? No, it's because God changed our hearts as he did Titus's. So here we see the same idea. Thanks be to God. What do you thank God for, Paul, for the Romans? That ye were, he says. You used to be. This is an imperfect verb. It means it happened in time past again and again and again. This was your state in the past, and I thank God that it's not that way now. Ye were the slaves of sin. You were not your own masters. You were slaves of sin, he says. But God. Please open to Ephesians chapter 2. There's another passage that illustrates the same truth. Thanks be to God that ye were the servants of sin. Ephesians chapter 2, page 1179 of your pew Bibles. We'll start our reading at verse 1. And you hath he quickened, 
who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked, according to the course of this world, there's the dominion of Satan and the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. Notice there, it's the same thanks to God, isn't it? Who is it that gets the credit for changing a dead sinner, raising them to spiritual life, and causing them to believe in Christ? It is God. But God, God, be thanked that ye were the servants of sin. But now there's something entirely different. But you have obeyed from the heart. Did Titus have a reception and accepting of the exhortation? Yes. Do we obey God's truth from the heart? Yes. But who has the credit? Ye have obeyed, he says. Remember, this word obey means to come under what you hear. The word comes down from on high, and those who are ah, hupakuo, they say, no, I'm not going to listen to that word. Nope, not me, I'm disobedient. Hupakuo is, I hear the word come down and I submit myself to it. I will believe what you promise, I will obey what you command. That's obedience. So here we have the obedience, not from external compulsion, not because you are prodded like cattle, but from the heart, the core of your being, It's not mere talk. It's not merely with lips I say I'll obey God, but I'm vacillating and I won't really. No. This is from the mind, the will, and the affections, and that's what the heart means. In the Bible, the heart is not like puppies and kittens and flowers and cute little things that make you say, oh, I got warm and fuzzies inside. That's not the heart. Those are the bowels in the Bible, okay? There's the word for it, the bowels down here. You feel that little feeling is special, right? Oh, I love my mommy. I feel little feelings right here. Those are your bowels. The heart is the core of who you are. It's how you think about things. It's the choices that you make, the things that you desire. Where do your affections move toward? That's the heart. But basically, it's the thinking capacity, and it's the will. So they were not told from the outside, now you need to obey, get on it, slave. No, it was from the heart, from the inside out. They assented with their mind. Their will moved toward obedience. Their affections were on fire for the Lord. But who was to be thanked? God was to be thanked. Thanks be to God. One, that you used to be a slave and now you're not. And two, that you obeyed. Thank the Lord for that because he put it in your heart just like he put it in Titus's heart. He changed your heart so that you desired to obey his commandments to receive the doctrine of the gospel. Thank God that he did so. 
Which brings us then to the delivered to doctrine, the second part of this passage. But thanks be to God that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Now I'm generally reluctant to correct our English Bible, but here it must be corrected. This sounds like the doctrine was handed over to you. It was delivered to you. Like you got a package. It came and was delivered to your porch. It was delivered to you. That's not what he's saying. This means you were delivered to the doctrine. You were handed over to this form of doctrine. In fact, it's almost like God melted you down and then poured you into a mold and you came into that mold of doctrine. That's the idea here. We are passive in this, in other words. It's not something we receive. It's something we are delivered into. Please open to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 concerning the activity of God's doctrines. We'll start there at verse 14 and show a contrast between those who have hearts of stone and those who have been melted and molded into the doctrine of the gospel. Verse 14. But their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now, the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Note there, what is the effect of the Old Testament on the Jews when they read it? It bounces off, doesn't it? It has no effect. Their hearts are so hard, their eyes are blinded, that it cannot make an inroad. But what about when someone turns to Christ? What happens to that veil that's there in the reading of the Old Testament? It is taken away. It is removed. And the power of the truth of God's word comes and says, I will transform you. You will have this doctrine impress you into its mold. And that's what happens here. The spirit of the Lord, the freedom we have in Christ is that the word of God is not a closed book. It is an open book that transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. Now the pagans, they had a little looking glass. And on their looking glass, they would carve an image of their little God, like a little picture. And they would sit there and look at that God and they would try to look like Hercules or they would try to look like Jupiter. They'd like, they'd like to look like one of their stupid little gods in a glass, in a looking glass. Here he says the word of God is like that looking glass. There you see the image of Jesus Christ portrayed for you, and you will be transformed by looking at that glass. The word of God is like a mirror in which we can see our natural faces. So here we can also see the glory of Jesus Christ, the truth that transforms. Our Lord prayed in his high priestly prayer that God would sanctify his people in God's truth. 
Thy word, he says, is truth. We are to be transformed. We are to be made holy. We're to be made dedicated to God through his doctrine, through his teaching, through the Bible. Please open to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, page 1202 of your pew Bibles. We'll start reading at verse 15. You recall, Timothy was raised in a mixed household. His father was a Greek, his mother was a Jew, his grandmother was a Jew, and as any good Jew, she would raise her child hearing the words of God. Verse 15. And that from a child, that means a baby in arms, from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works, except for the ones that will make up for you and require you to do. Is that what it says? That's what the Pope says. That's what he said at the Council of Trent. If you don't obey the commandments of the church as well as the commandments of God, you can't be saved. What? You mean to tell me that there are commandments outside of Scripture that I need to obey so that I can have salvation? Huh? Is that what the Apostle says? Well, if God's Word is partially the Word of God, sure, that works. It needs some supplements, right? Your diet doesn't give you enough. You've got to take vitamins, of course. But what if your food gives you everything you need? What if it thoroughly furnishes you for every work that you are required to do? Do you need supplements? No. Does God's word need supplements? Absolutely not. To ask the question is to answer it. God's doctrine makes us wise unto salvation. God's doctrine in the scriptures tells us how to have faith in Christ and how to be saved by that faith. In fact, that's the Old Testament he's talking about. The Old Testament has that doctrine, much less the writings of the apostles, which are much more clear with the same doctrine. God's word is inspired by him. It's like his breath breathing out into the text of the Bible. And then because it's God's word, it will profit you in what you know or are taught, the doctrine. It will reprove you when you are in error. It will show you the right way and correct you. It will show you the principles of obedience and righteousness so that in all those things, you won't need anything else. You will need the word and the word of God alone. We say sola scriptura, only the Bible. All of the Bible and only the Bible is what we need to be saved, to have faith in Christ, and every single good work God requires of us. There's nothing else we need. This is the power of God's doctrine. And we have been delivered. We have been betrayed. We have been handed over. This verb can be used in all these different ways back in Romans 6, 17. This doctrine that was delivered to us, we were handed over to it. We were poured into this mold of doctrine. Matthew Poole says this, this word delivered. It expresseth the efficacy of divine doctrine in the hearts of believers. It changeth 
and fashioneth their hearts according to its likeness. Remember, looking into the mirror, that's the word of God. You look into the mirror and you're transformed into its image. That's the power of God's doctrine. It turns the heart and life of the hearer into its own nature. As the stock doth the scion that is engrafted into it. Did you know that that's what happens when you graft a scion, a little piece of wood, you put it into another stock of a tree, it starts partaking of the root and fatness of that stock, doesn't it? And so here, we're grafted into the truth, and therefore the truth conforms us to its nature. This is called sanctification. And then turn back, please, to Romans 6.17. We'll look at the last portion. Now, the apostle is in a different order here than our English Bibles in the Greek. Here we read, But ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. In the Greek it reads as follows, But ye obeyed from from the heart unto which ye were delivered emphatically form of doctrine. So he puts the deliverance first. He brings that to our mind, that we are passive and that God is the one who took his doctrines, impressed them upon our minds, and then he talks about that form that God has, the form of doctrine. Moses was commanded concerning this word form, tupos. Moses was commanded to make all things according to the fashion that God showed him. God gave him a type. Here, Moses, this is what the house of God is to look like. Make it exactly as I have showed you this type. Same thing with the doctrine. It is a form. It is a type. God says, here is the doctrine. I want you to form your life according to these doctrines. Please open to 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1. Sorry, I have you jumping around a little bit today, but I believe these are very important passages. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We'll read verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost, which dwelleth in us. Remember, he's going to refer to this as both the teaching of the Old Testament in chapter 3, but here it's the teaching of the inspired apostle, the apostle himself. I had a form of doctrine. It's the same root word, hupa tupasin, a type or a mold, a pattern of doctrine. I laid that pattern before you, Timothy. You take that pattern and you pass it on to others. This is the apostolic tradition, a thing handed down from one hand to another. It does not contradict the written scriptures. It is the written scriptures. That is our tradition. What tradition are you of? Apostolic. Not in the sense that I blab in tongues, but in the sense that God gave me through the apostles a record handed down from generation to generation, kept pure in all ages, so that what I have in my hand is the very words of Almighty God to read, to preach, to believe, and to live according to. This is the type. This is the form of doctrine. Diodati. God through grace hath freed you by the gospel to which you have willingly submitted yourselves as to the pattern and mold of your regeneration. 
like unto metal which is melted, or some other soft kind of stuff which taketh its form from the mold into which it is cast. We are melted down by God. We are put into the mold of his doctrine, and that's what forms us as believers. Finally, he refers to that form of doctrine. This word doctrine means teaching, instruction, or the things that you are taught. So when you receive teaching, when you are instructed, it's the process of instruction as doctrine, but also the things that you're taught, the ideas, the principles, the faith, the duties. Those are doctrines, in other words. Please open to John chapter 7 concerning the doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll read verses 14 through 16. If you ever get an opportunity to read through the Gospel of John, look for the word, word. Because the word, word, can mean a doctrine, a teaching, a sermon, or some kind of discourse, some kind of rational discourse. And you'll find that the doctrines of Christ are extremely important. If you do not believe the doctrines that he says, you can't actually be saved. So it's very important that we understand what doctrine are we talking about here? What is the doctrine of Christ? Verse 14. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? He never received a doctrinal certificate from one of the great schools of our rabbis. How is it that he knows all this stuff? Verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Who is that? Who sent Jesus? God the Father. God the Father Father taught me doctrine. I now deliver that doctrine to you. And by the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost, he's going to deliver the Spirit to bring to the mind of the apostles everything that he taught them so that they would write down for us the New Testament and we would know exactly what is the Father's doctrine. Well, it's Jesus' doctrine. Well, what is Jesus' doctrine? What's the Apostles' doctrine? That is Christian doctrine. What did the Apostles say? They delivered the doctrine of Christ to us in writing. Please turn over to Acts chapter 2. Page 10, or excuse me, 1096 of your pew Bibles. This is the day of Pentecost I was alluding to earlier, starting at verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Listen. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Notice there. What is the life of the church all about? What is it that brought these people together? Well, of course, they received the sign of baptism, a seal of the righteousness of the faith that they had when they were unbaptized. That's it. They get baptized. Then what do they do? They continue steadfastly. That means that nothing will shake them from this purpose. It's like they're an addict, literally. It could mean, it could be translated as addicted. They addicted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. And not only just teaching, they also had things in fellowship together with other believers, the common meeting of the saints, the common needs of the saints. What else? 
breaking of bread, either the Lord's table or fellowship meals or both, and then prayer. These are, these are the basic means of grace. They addicted themselves to the means of grace. They continued steadfastly in the doctrine of the apostles. The same thing is what Jesus taught. Now his apostles are teaching it. And they command others to remember that form of doctrine and to pass it on to others. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Please turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4, page 1202. 2 Timothy is called a pastoral epistle, but it has much to say about doctrine. 2 Timothy 4, we'll continue where we left off. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, that is doctrine that is healthy, doctrine that accords with the teaching of Jesus and the Old Testament and the apostles. They won't, they won't endure that. They want sick doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap up to themselves teachers having itching ears. Ah, I got an itch you need to scratch, teach. I want you to tell me something good. I want some fables. That's what he says, verse 4. They shall turn away their ears from, ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Stories that really aren't true, but kind of warm your heart. Oh, you can have your best life now, can't you? Do you know what that means? The title of that book means you're on your way to hell and you're a reprobate. Because your best life is right now, your worst life is the next life. You notice that? God blinded Joel Osteen's mind so that he'd tell people, all you people who listen to me are going to hell. Isn't that great? You want to pay me some money to go to hell and buy my book? Wonderful. No, not wonderful. There is wholesome doctrine, and it accords with the teaching of the Old and New Testaments. And then there is this itching ear fable that you tell me that I can have my best life now, and that God wants me to be rich, and I don't need to repent of my sins, and that God isn't a lawgiver anymore. No, 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 no. Jesus died on the cross. You can live as you please, baby. All you need is love, love, love. Love is all you need. Really? Is that true? What does love mean? Tell me, what's the definition of love? That I need to know, don't I? That's doctrine, isn't it? Oh, doctrine divides. Yes, that's true. He said, if you hear my voice, you are of my sheep. And if you butt against the doctrines, what are you? You're a goat. Yes, it divides sheep from goats. That's God's intention, that it would divide people up. Verse 7 of Titus 1, please. Next page over, page 1204. Verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate. Listen, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. 
For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, oh, that's anti-Semitic, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not, for filthy lucre's sake. I want you to pay me money. I'll tell you falsehood, partial truth, some of the truth, so that you keep paying me money. That's the false teacher. That's the unsound doctrine. This other, this bishop that he's talking about, he must have a practical obedience to God and he must hold fast the faithful word as he modified it to get his PhD degree, right? PhD degrees arose in the 19th century so that they could subvert the Christian religion. That's why they arose. Because every PhD has to be new. It has to be novel. Nobody else can have written that PhD dissertation. It has to be a new topic. So wait a second. That means a bishop can't be a PhD, can he? He has to take what he has been given. Remember, it's the Father's doctrine, delivered to the Son, given through the Holy Spirit, to the apostles, to the church. That's it. That's all you can deliver, he says. That is sound doctrine. And he is to exhort... And he is to convince the gainsayer because there's a lot of people out there, especially a lot of Jews, who don't do that, who want money and therefore will tell people what they think those people want to hear rather than what God says. Yes, doctrine divides. And Titus is told to divide these people up with doctrine, to slay them with the breath of Christ, the words of Almighty God. There are many vain talkers. Their mouths must be stopped, he said. That doesn't mean they'll stop speaking. That means that people will realize these words are empty. The doctrines that I've heard from this bishop that Titus had taught, the doctrines of the apostles, his words are true. His words are convincing. His words come from God, in other words. This is the faithful doctrine, the faithful word. As he was taught, so he will teach. Doctrines then and uses of this passage of scripture. The first doctrine is that salvation is of the Lord. It is not of man. Salvation is of the Lord, not of man. Man, of course, needs salvation, doesn't he? But is he the source of salvation? He is not. First use of information. God is to be thanked. Since he delivered us from the bondage of sin, since he makes the present reality of slavery to obedience come to pass, though he deals with us as men, though he enlightens our minds, though he renews our wills, though he persuades and enlivens our affections, it's his work. He's the one working on us. He's the one working in us. Use two of rebuke. Any who would make man into his own author of salvation would make man into his own what? His own God. Paul said, God be thanked. So if you thank man for his salvation, you make man into a God. You thank man for his faith, you turn man into a God. You thank man for delivering himself from his slavery to sin, you make him a God. Salvation is of the Lord, and therefore he gets all the credit, all the praise. He raises from the dead. Remember Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, but 
You had a good idea. You exercised your freedom of will. You came forward when the man said, come on forward, brothers and sisters. You came to the altar call. Good choice. Way to go. Pat him on the back. Different gospel. Different God. No. Thanks be to God that ye were the servants of sin. You were dead, dead in trespasses and sins, but God, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when you were a rebel, he's the one who saves. Therefore, it's of grace. So this is a rebuke. Salvation is of the Lord, not of man. And of exhortation in the third place. Let us give God the glory let us give him the praise. Let us thank him for our salvation. There are many troubles in the Christian life. There are many things to discourage. There are many things to weaken. This is one of those things that lifts the spirit. The prophet said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. When I remember that God is my savior and that he who began the good work will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ, I cannot be despondent. I cannot despair. I cannot wallow in the mire. I must rise up to praise Almighty God who has called me out of darkness into His marvelous light. It is all of His grace. It is all through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it is all to His glory who made us to differ from others. Paul asks the Corinthians, what do you have that you have not received? Well, it's nothing. Everything we have is from God's bounteous hand. And so then salvation, too, should lead us to praise and glorify our God. A second doctrine. There is an apostolic mold or type of doctrine. There is an apostolic mold or type of doctrine. And all of the saints are pressed into that mold. They are all handed over. They are all delivered to that type, that form, that pattern of doctrine. First use of information. The doctrines of our faith are delivered to us by Christ through his spirit, written down by his prophets and his apostles. No other doctrines are acceptable. You remember in 2 Corinthians 1, he said to the Corinthians that they acknowledge and read no other things. Nothing else gets to creep in and push out the writings that God inspired by his spirit from his son and ultimately from the father himself. Our doctrines must come from God. We must be pressed into his mold, not some other. This then in second use is of rebuke. Since there is an apostolic mold or type of doctrine, into which all of the saints of God are pressed, this is a rebuke to the doctrines and commandments of men. They are therefore unwholesome, unsound doctrines that derive their existence, their source is from men. Now this does not mean, let me just make a clarification here, this doesn't mean that you can just say, well, my doctrine is the Bible. I only believe what the words of Scripture say. Because you will find that you have to make logical conclusions. Okay, well, it says this, and it says this, and therefore, this is the case. We have to come to doctrinal conclusions. But all those doctrines are based off of the premises provided by God in his word. Not provided by our own minds, philosophy, human reason, 
tradition, our own feeling of things, I don't feel like that's right. So I'm not going to believe that's your interpretation. When someone says something like that, they're saying, my feelings are more important than the source of truth in Scripture because I'm my own source of truth. I'm my own God. I'm my own oracle. And the little voice in my head says, no, God can't be right. It doesn't say that. And there are a lot of people, even some who are genuine believers, who can be trapped in this little world. Well, I don't feel like that should say that. Well, is there some reason in the Bible that that's not true? That's how we formulate our doctrines. We look at Scripture. We make conclusions from Scripture. That is not illegitimate. That is not ungodly. God requires that we do that. That being said, when doctrines and commandments cannot be proven from Scripture, when they do not have their source from the Bible that God actually inspired, they are false. They have no power to save. They have no right over a Christian's conscience. Since they're not recorded in God's official record of his will, you may safely reject them all. In fact, you are required to reject them all. Also, so there's one ditch, the doctrines and commandments of men. Then there's this other ditch that says, well, doctrine's a bad idea. Doctrine's kind of unchristlike. It's kind of funny, isn't it? Jesus is talking about his doctrines. The apostles are teaching his doctrines. A bishop has to re- reprove and rebuke using doctrines and long-suffering. And some people have the audacity to say that doctrines are unchristian. We shouldn't have a doctrinal Christianity. Well, we should not have a Christianity that consists only in doctrines. That's true. Because part of our doctrine is that there is an application of our doctrines in obedience to God's revealed will. So yes, we should not have an exclusively doctrinal Christianity. But if you don't have a doctrinal Christianity, you are not a Christian. You are a well-meaning pagan. Those who oppose all doctrines or doctrine as a system are agents of Satan. God says he delivers people from bondage to sin. How? By molding them and pressing them into a pattern of doctrine. You tell me don't do that. And God says, well, that's how I save people. So therefore, you must be an agent of Satan if you say no to doctrine. God uses doctrine to deliver us from the bondage of sin, to enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ. We are to addict ourselves to the apostles' doctrine, not to forsake it as some kind of second-class Christianity. Third use, then, if there is an apostolic mold or type of doctrine, let us know those doctrines. Let us know the truth that God has revealed in his word. Know the book the Bible, the scriptures. This is where Christ delivers all of his promises, all of his precepts. That's where we know about his kingdom and what he's doing in it and what he requires our part to be. It is not in our feelings. It is not in our impressions. It is not in traditions. It's not even in other books that are good and that teach sound doctrine. It is in this book where everything we need to know is told to us. When you read this book, and you must read this book, you must read it daily so that you may know and ask the Lord, please, Lord, open my eyes 
that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Remember when Samuel, the boy, is in the temple, and he hears the Lord, Samuel, Samuel, and he comes and he asks Eli, yes, what do you want? And finally, Eli realizes the second or third time, that's the Lord talking to you. Say this, and what is he told to say? Speak, Lord, for thy servant is listening. I'm listening to what you say, God. Please show me the glories of your word. Pray that you will behold wondrous things out of thy law. Pray that, as Jesus said, this word will sanctify you. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You can pray with Jesus. Sanctify me through your truth, Lord. What about Paul? The blinders the Jews had on their eyes. Pray, oh God, please do not give me blinders. Please open my eyes. Please fill me with your spirit that I may be transformed from glory to glory by beholding as in the mirror the face of Jesus Christ in the words of Almighty God. And thus far the consideration of this apostolic mold into which we are pressed.